Welcome to the Gay and Gray podcast. <laughs> so, so the, the podcast is one of the activities of the organization. Yeah. Yeah. So because right now we can't really meet in person generally. I mean, we're, we're starting to plan outdoor activities yeah. for when it gets warmer. Yeah. But especially throughout the winter it's been you know people are stuck at home and even in the summer people are still very very cautious and rightfully so i mean it's a scary time yeah thanks for doing the podcast (laughs) i'm i'm very honored i mean i'm guessing david must have like mentioned oh i know this chris so i'm just really honored i love david yeah how Um, how did you meet david cassidy well david was my supervisor actually when i was doing my bachelor's of social work at McGill Mm -hmm. uh, many years ago, (laughs) over 20 years ago, like I can't remember exactly what year. So he he supervised my field placement, I think for two years. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. One with Project 10 and the other one was more like an individual thing I was doing. So that's how I met David and we sort of kept in touch. We lost touch for a little while because I moved away from Montreal. Um, I moved to Toronto for 10 years and then I moved back here about 11, 12 years ago. And then we reconnected and so we've sort of kept in touch in that way. But I I, I love him. He's such an amazing person and he's done so much for the community. And I mean, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, honestly. He's like my mentor, you know. He shaped me in every single way, like professionally, but also obviously like, you know, I think especially when you do social work, like there's a personal element to it as well. So he shaped me personally as well as professionally and I owe him a lot of gratitude and I'm very humbled that he speaks so highly of me, honestly. So if you're listening, David, I do love you and we have to get together sometime (laughs) soon in some form or another so i will be in touch (laughs) (laughs) and chris tell me about about your work that you do yeah so i'm the executive director of an organization called maison Flancard, which is an organization that's been around for 30 years and we support people living with hiv in montreal all people living living with hiv uh, regardless of your, your your sexual orientation, your age, your your gender identity, people have tended to think that you know HIV, you know, and there's some truth to it. Back in the days, like when if we're thinking back 20, 30 years ago, and beyond, that it was identified as you know a more of a gay male problem. I think especially in North America. Especially in North America, but that's changed a lot. So just our I, I don't. I, I, I do my work in French, so I'm not sure what word I would use to describe our clientele. I'll use that for lack of a better word. I'm not crazy about that word, but our clientele, in brackets, is quite diversified. Uh, yes, we have gay men, but we, have, we, we reach a lot of women, people from ethnic communities. We reach a lot of older uh, people as well. So it's quite mixed, and, and that tends to, even to this day, surprise some people who still think it's like a gay thing, you mm-hmm. know? So that's my work. I've been at the organization for a little over five years, but I've been doing this community-based work primarily in the HIV field and sort of intersected with LGBTQ communities for over 20 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so I've, I feel very blessed to have had the opportunities to work in this community and work with these communities. And I mean, for me, it's like a personal thing I being gay myself and it's been just a great personal and professional experience back in the 90s things were very different than they are now like around HIV and people living with HIV I think we've come a long way I think just getting funding it's never easy but it's a little easier you know I think People recognize HIV as being, you know, a, a priority to some degree, <laughs> depending on who you speak with. But, you know, back in back 20, 25, 30 years ago, I mean, the reality of HIV was so different than what it is now. People were really, well, people were dying, you know. People still do die, you know, nowadays, less so directly because of HIV, because the medications are way uh, improved and people live better quality of lives 
overall, even though there's still some side effects and still some issues, but but it's it's I would say generally speaking, without making any stereotypes, it's it's almost like HIV is no longer the major obstacle in in the lives of people living with HIV. For many of them, it's about the stigma that still exists today that drastically affects their their well-being and their health and their ability to disclose their HIV status in, an, in a safe and open way, whether it's in the workplace or in their private circles, you know, amongst family members. So there's still a lot of fear of disclosing. And a lot of that is related to stigma and, and stigma and discrimination that still happens today. You know, stories of people losing their jobs because they think they're not, never sure. You can never put your finger on it, but they, they're pretty sure that they lost their job because someone found out that they were HIV positive. And, you know, I, I, I remember one case over the last few years that occurred where this man lost his job even though he never got a poor performance evaluation. Everything was fine. And he believed that his colleagues might have found, you know, a medical note in his, you know, in, on his desk or somewhere. And they looked up the medications and they noticed it was HIV medications and they must have told the boss. And then the boss made an excuse to fire him. And so he, he got legal advice and support and they contested and he was able to get his job back. Wow. Because they couldn't justify firing him. There was no reason to fire oh him. God. So in that case, he was lucky, but imagine what he went through and he had to have enough courage to decide to pursue and not just to like, it's not worth it. I, 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 I'm just going to move on. And I think a lot of people do that. They're just not, you know, it's, it's putting yourself at another risk of going through a, a whole procedure to potentially, again, out you as an HIV positive person to other people. And some people just decide, no, I'm not going to do it. So it just goes undealt with. And so well, it and still happens. Going still back happens. to your job, you know, like it's, it sounds like if that was the reason for, you know, him losing his job, and then having to, like, getting his job back is fantastic and wonderful, but yes. also has to go back to that environment with those yeah. same people and work exactly. day in, day out. Exactly. I, I think really in that hard. case, the, the individual got transferred to another office, let's say. Oh, I really hope so. Yeah, I hope so, too. <laughs> you know, imagine. But, but still, I mean... Those obviously, those types of things shouldn't be happening. And no. So yeah, it does. There's still a lot of stigma. There's still a lot of. Well, there's a huge lack of education among people who, because if if you're untouched personally by HIV, yeah, then you just don't know because the yeah. only the only knowledge that we really have, especially like from people my generation and younger, is we just have sort of general stories and and movies about you know the yeah. AIDS epidemic in the yeah. 80s when people yeah. were literally dying within days, yeah. and so there isn't really that follow-up information of all of the work that has been done since then and how different it is yeah. because it isn't the same as it was when it first you know showed up i find more so now than even 15 20 years ago where it was very apparent what was going on you know when people were really having like a lot of problems with their their HIV infections and dying and nowadays because that's not happening I find in again in a general way it's become more invisible in our communities in our society and we don't realize that there are people living with HIV amongst us like you might have work colleagues you might have family members who are without you even knowing I mean I know some people who I'm the only person, apart from their doctor, that knows that they're HIV positive. And they, they have this fear, an understandable fear, of even disclosing to close friends. 
and and that's like wow we are, we are in 2021 and there are people amongst us who are still afraid to talk about this condition that they have you know because they're they're afraid and rightfully so because so many bad things still happen i mean there are you know i i don't want to paint a, 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 a too dark of a picture there are also great stories of families being very accepting and partners who find out and 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 workplace environments and so there's progress for sure but there's still a lot of work to do so the the people that we tend to support are are those that are you know tend to be more invisible not not as seen in the communities uh, and they're more marginalized uh, for different reasons and so so we try to support them in various ways so in in a very holistic approach towards health and well-being so uh, yeah so that's what i do yeah. that's so good <laughs> and so needed and uh, i mean especially when you're part of a marginalized group i think you get used to being silenced and staying silent and then when you have other elements to yourself then it's like you know you're already used to being silent so what's one more thing but I think the more things that you're silent about the harder it is on you even if you don't notice it right away it it takes a toll when you when you can't just be fully open because then you have to wonder like am I am I revealing something about myself that I don't intend to and that's stressful it's stressful when you have to like hide things I think in, for me, more and more, I'm realizing that social inclusion is a really key thing that we all need to work on. And like in relation to HIV, like making sure that people living with HIV are integrated into the fabric of our communities. And it also applies to LGBTQ aging populations and all these other different populations I think you know and and believe me I, I am all for having safe spaces and safer spaces that are dedicated for specific communities because that's needed but there's there needs to be a balance between having those spaces and integration absolutely you know? that's that's something that I also think about a lot because I mean right now we're trying to really diversify our own within our group because we started off largely as gay men but we really want to be inclusive to all the parts of, of our communities so we have a women's circle and hopefully soon we can have like a non-binary trans yeah. circle as well and like different different identities so that we can have those safer spaces for those those folks to be able to sort of like breathe easily and openly and speak freely without worrying about how they're presenting themselves you know specifically to other people who don't identify as they do but we also want to be able to all come together and have fun all in one room or you know in one space at one time and not be stepping on each other's toes or insulting someone without even realizing it so I think that's why we're also gearing towards education and, and trying to make sure that the different parts of our community understand the other parts of our community we just need to find that balance like i think for instance gay and gray needs to have activities that are specifically for 50 and over you know it makes sense it, it's needed but you know hopefully there are also opportunities to, to bridge those gaps yeah, which is the nice yeah. thing that I'm finding with working with Gay and Gray is that because it's it's an organization for 50 plus, it's a centralized place where if people want to have that kind of interaction with their like queer elders, as a, a lot of people will say queer elders these days, I'm, I'm still struggling with like whether or not I want to use that because elders is like that's very much like a indigenous term right, right. a lot of the time. And so I feel weird about using that word, but I also don't have good replacements. <laughs> <laughs> but there's been a lot of folks who are in their 20s, 30s, who are really missing that kind of having like, you know, a, a grandparent yeah. in the community kind yeah. of relationship and, yeah. and having someone that they can go to about these things that maybe their own family might not be aware of or might not be informed about. And so we've been having a few events on Zoom where we have folks who register they register within like they have their sort of age group that they're in and then we try to make sure that they're in breakout rooms that are age balanced yeah that's great yeah Yeah. so it's smaller groups of people maybe like six of them so that they can actually have some good conversations 
uh, but it's it's age balanced, and so yeah, you can get great. different perspectives. Cool. Yeah, cool. so it's been really fun. And people people have really gotten so much out of it, and I I, I can't see us stopping anytime yeah, soon. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Awesome. Chris, tell me a little bit more about yourself. I self-identify as uh, a gay Asian male person of color, immigrant. I mean, I've been in Canada for a long time, but I lived through that immigration experience. I was born in Hong Kong, so I, I moved here with my family when I was nine. I really consider Canada and Montreal to be my home. Like, this is where I grew up, right? But I did, you know, live through that immigration experience. And it's interesting, just the other day, I can't remember in what context, I think it was on the news, and someone had said something in, in this report about the moment they realized that they were different. You know, but, and, and uh, different, not, not related to sexual orientation, but more around my race. You know, so back in, in Hong Kong, obviously I sort of blended in, you know, uh, you know with the majority. And I found it really interesting, even at my young age, like when I was nine, when I moved here, I quickly understood that I was different. I was the other, mm-hmm. you know, I was Asian. I actually, for the first time, actually understood that I was Asian. Back, back before I moved to Montreal, I mean, I knew I was Asian, <laughs> but it didn't mean anything to me. You know, it just was, right? Like, mm-hmm. it was who I was. When I moved to Montreal, very quickly, I knew that, oh, I'm not like other, like the majority, right? And so that was very, I think that shaped me quite a bit, <laughs> you know? Um, like, I think my first experience of, you know, being a minority, I guess. And then the whole gay thing, you know. Did you come out, like, officially to your parents, to your I, family? I did, yes. I'm, I'm completely out to everybody now. So I did come out to my family in different stages during my teenage years. Late teenage years, really. But I sort of knew... I knew I was... I had this attraction to men. Even at a young age, you know, like, even when I was, like, probably six or seven... We had a family friend who, you know, would come over for dinner with his wife. And and I was just very enthralled by the man. <laughs> and it wasn't sexual. It was just, I don't know, I, I can't explain what it was. So at that point, and I didn't think it was anything bad back then. And the first time I think I heard the word gay, I remember that. I, I was still in Hong Kong, so I was probably seven or eight and we were watching three's company with john ritter who pretend he's gay so that he can live with his two female roommates so the landlord doesn't kick them out so that's when the the first time i heard the word gay and i can't remember what my family we were watching the show and they said something about it i don't even think it was it was a negative thing but they just referred to his character you know sort of pretending to be gay to stay there. And so that was the first memory I had, but it wasn't a negative one, of which Mm -hmm. I think, thank goodness, because I think if they said something overtly negative, that probably would have affected me quite a bit. And then, you know, when I moved to Montreal, then it became more sexual at a certain (laughs) age, I have to admit. But for the first few years, I think... It never really dawned on me that, like, oh, I might be gay. It was, I was just like, I thought about guys. And I remember some of my classmates, which I won't name, <laughs> that I was just very, you know, yeah, I mean, hormones, right? Yeah. Teenager, right? And I remember the very specific moment that I realized it was like this aha moment. I was in bed, and I shared, like, a room with my older brother. So oh, my we had goodness. two separate beds, right, obviously. Anyways, I was, like, early teens, mid-teens, let's say. And I remember one night I was in bed. He was in his bed, and it just, it was, like, literally, there was a moment. It just clicked. I realized that I was gay. I remember thinking it in my head. It's like, 
I'm gay. And I, I, I swear to you, at that very moment, you know, people talk about like a, a, a weight being lifted off their shoulders. I don't know if it was that feeling, but I felt, I, I knew like, wow, this, this is a special moment in my, like I knew that I had just made this incredible realization and still, it's so vivid in my mind, that specific moment. I remember just lying there in bed and I was like, I'm gay. I'm like, <laughs> I, I just understood it, you know? And it never even occurred to me before that. Wow. Yeah. And so I lived like that for a little while. And I was very lucky. I, I met my first boyfriend a little after I turned 18. Like, totally innocent and naive and... I'm still in touch with him. He's a really good friend. And he, I think I was very lucky to find someone that sort of, in a way, took me under his wing. He, he, he's 10 years older than me. So he was 28 when I, when I met him. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I feel very lucky to have, you know, met someone that had a way to sort of understand like okay th- this is like your first gay relationship your first gay everything like he introduced me like to like for the first time to everything that was gay like first gay bar like everything first was with him right and and that's pretty powerful and i consider myself very lucky i mean i'm very grateful i feel very lucky to have been in good hands, let's say, because mm-hmm. I don't think everyone has that luck. I had per- a person who just like showed me the ropes and understood that, okay, you're 18, like you're gonna wanna discover things. And that's what happened after a while, I felt this need like to, to learn about who I was and, and this community. And so so that led to partially like led to the end of our relationship and and then I really discovered gay <laughs> the whole gay world you know I lived it fully deep dive uh, yeah it was a pretty deep dive um, I've I've lived through a lot you know yeah in terms of my my gay identity I guess yeah how and it's how old are you if you don't mind me asking I am about to turn 46 this Sunday wow 50 for me is like I think for a lot of people, it's like a big thing, right? Mm-hmm. I, it is a big thing for me as it creeps up on me. I don't feel it at all. I feel like I, I've lived a lot, you know, of, of experiences, ups and downs. And at my age now, about to turn 46, I don't think I've ever been healthier, more alive. I feel young at heart. Yet, I will soon be considered an, you know, older person especially in the queer community i feel like aging is just totally different yes yeah we we can talk about that (laughs) shortly if we have time definitely i've got my opinions on ageism in our communities uh which is a real thing and i agree with you even at 46 i mean i've been rejected for being you know too old for some people and i'm like and this is not even now i mean even many years ago so that's like you know, and a lot of a lot of people in our communities, I think, live that like where they feel like once you're past your sort of prime age of 25, it's just downhill from there. I'm like, that's so sad. That's really, really sad. I think I generally look fairly young, except for like if you look closer at my hair, I've got some graying hair, and I think that gives it away. But generally, it's fashion I, gray. You know, I, I, I think I come off as rel- relatively young looking. So, you know, people talk about my Asian genes. Yes, Asian people tend to look younger. And I think, yes, to some degree, I think I can, you know, I can thank my parents for that, I guess. <laughs> but personally, I've gone through, you know, my share of experiences. And, you know, without getting into a huge amount of detail, but... I've gone through some major lows, let's say, in my life uh, related to substance use. Yeah, that were really challenging. I think I, I, I can say there was a period of my life where I went through 
some major depression related to it and it was pretty bad you know and and having a social work background I mean it's really interesting because you sort of I I saw it I saw what was happening to me I saw how I was figuratively like going deeper and deeper into this hole and being less able to get out of it every day you know and seeing that I was you know thought like I couldn't go any lower but then you would go even lower so that was like definitely the darkest moment you know in in my life I feel very lucky to have gotten out of all of that before I I was more in management type of roles with the organizations I worked with I used to be a frontline worker and so I would meet a lot of and, and at that time I was working specifically with the gay and bisexual male population around HIV prevention and their overall sexual health so back then when I was an outreach worker I would I had a team of this is in Toronto by the way at the AIDS community of Toronto I worked with a team of volunteers and we would do outreach in the community and I would also do outreach as the staff person so I would go into the bathhouses into the bars less so the bars more the volunteers at the bars but I would go into the bathhouses to do shifts I would go into the parks to reach men many of whom who don't identify as gay or bisexual who identify as heterosexual who are married so I've met a lot of men in those types of situations so I, I feel like I have a really unique perspective of, especially like the gay male, and I use gay, you know, in brackets, like as a overarching term, mm -hmm. understanding and recognizing that there are men who don't identify as gay or bisexual, but who do have sexual or affective ties with other men. When I was doing that work, I mean, it was just really, interesting to see like the whole like diversity of experiences that we as 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 um, a queer community if we can use that as an overarching term like that that we live that we experience it's so rich and crazy to some degree and and there's so many great things but there's there are a lot of not so great things within it's a our lot of communities tough experiences. yeah and even within our communities i think there's discrimination and stigma that exists i mean and if you go on grinder there's like definitely oh, a lot of it's, like it's very not, specific uh yeah. not cool things yeah i mean i've been rejected clearly because I've, I've, i'm asian i've had you know i think back way back and i won't again name names because i wouldn't want to hurt that person but well, my, my second ex, he used to own, like, bars. like So he had a gay club in mm -hmm. Toronto. And so I was sort of... That, that also gave me a really interesting insight into the whole underground scene, drug use. So I've, I've also done some work around substance use, and particularly in, in gay men. But this experience of... of I guess racism, indirect racism, I guess. So there was an acquaintance, I guess a friend, you know, that we knew through this underground scene. And I can't remember. I mean, you know how, you know, a lot of us are when we're in a social setting, we're sort of like, oh, he's cute and he's cute. And so this Asian guy passed by and this, this acquaintance friend made this, had this reaction like, like you. And it was clearly because he was Asian. And I was like, I didn't say anything. I didn't react. I should have, in hindsight. But I was still relatively young back then. And like, I was really taken aback by that. I didn't react, and I, I know I should have, and I think I would nowadays. But getting to this example of within our communities, I think there's a lot of work to do around really understanding what inclusivity means and understanding our own stigma and and you know uh, our own stereotypes that we have about other people well yeah like we're sponges to our environment right and our environment yeah. is like a very racist sexist you know all yeah. the ists yeah. <laughs> all the isms yeah. uh and it, it's 
it's really hard to escape that culture, especially if you grew up watching TV, listening to the radio, like consuming the, the general media that was out for everyone that you know we all kind of paid attention to. I think it's a little bit different now with internet and, and all those sorts of things. I think things are, are better in a lot of ways. But for me, like growing up through the 90s, a lot of stuff I would watch on TV and movies, like it's is very white centric. Mm -hmm. So like the love interests are only of a very particular type of person and very like, you know, the top 5% of like balanced features, a certain height, a certain mm -hmm. weight. We're so trained to view a yeah. very particular kind of person as attractive and yeah. and everybody else as not yeah. and that is something that unless unless you take some real time to devote to training your brain to think differently because yeah. that's what it is you have to look at the world around you and challenge your brain and your assumptions because yeah. they're not right <laughs> Yeah, the whole the whole issue of sexual racism, I guess, you know, that term has been used before to describe this experience is it's interesting because it, it get, it's so personal. You know, our attraction to other people is very personal, very ingrained in us. And it's very challenging for someone to hear that maybe your sexual preferences, your attraction to certain people is based on racism, you know? It's very, very challenging, and I get it. I mean, it's very, very hard to, to deal with that. I, I remember some friends that I luckily had the chance to talk about this issue with them and their own experience of having gotten past that barrier. Two people in particular that told me that, you know, at the beginning, like, they, they also, like most of us, had these sexual attractions to certain types of people and not others and it was purely because of the person's skin color right and they at some point they made this conscious effort to reflect on where their attractions came from and the they i think they understood that they are socially created you know uh, we aren't born with these <laughs> they are socially created and we don't realize it because you know, it starts from such an early age when you pick up a magazine, when you, everything, what you see on TV. So all these things shape our attraction. And even for me, I think about it, you know, the, the, the person that I mentioned from Hong Kong, the friend of the family, he was a, a white male. And I look back on that and I understand that this is what I saw around me as being the standard of, you know, of beauty for a man, right? And that has shaped my attractions. And I understand for myself that it's also difficult to, to break that pattern that's so ingrained in yourself. It can be done to some degree if you have a willingness to challenge yourself and to accept that and to understand that. You know, this is how society has programmed us. And so, so back to those couple friends who did get past that hurdle, it was very powerful to hear that it's possible for us as a community to really look at ourselves and individually, you know, without having other people need, needing to challenge you. Like, we can each do that and do the best that we can to, you know maybe be have a little less of that you know but understanding that it's very hard to completely change that you know because they're so ingrained in us so i but i, I do think it's possible and i think as a community we need to challenge each other we need to find ways to to have these discussions and sort of push each other's buttons a little bit in in the most respectful way possible and also understanding that hey, we all do the best that we can. That's all we can ask of each other. No one's ever going to be perfect. But maybe we each have a responsibility to look within ourselves. If we don't like what's going on in society, in the world, and, you know, George Floyd, and all these other things that are going on in the world, well, they start um, within people, you know? As, as a larger community, where are we having these discussions? When do we have these discussions? We're not, 
And that's that's sad because I think we just won't progress as fast. Absolutely. And, and so. you know, we're, we're so stuck in our habits and, you know, we, we like things that are predictable, especially within our community where we're many of us have faced so many like violent situations or very harmful situations having that security and comfort and having that sort of like our bubbles not being challenged has been really protective in a lot of ways and i think that it's important to let people have that to a degree but when when you feel safe enough to push yourself a little bit and try to expand your comfort zone a little bit more and expand the way that you think about things a little bit more. At my workplace, you know, at Maison Plancard, but also beyond this, I'm starting to really understand and appreciate the resiliency that each of us have. I believe like every single person has it within themselves, this resiliency. However, I think some of us may have, for different reasons, maybe by chance or consciously, developed those uh, resiliencies so that maybe we can cope better with difficult times or stressful situations and conflicts and stuff like that. And I think, again, as a community, I think we need to focus more on supporting our communities to develop resiliency. It's not like giving resiliency to someone, but helping people find the resiliency that each of us have. And I think that that could change so many things in people's lives. For the LGBTQ communities, that's so huge. I think, I think everyone, everyone in society could benefit from developing our sense of resiliency. How do you feel, and you know, we wanted to talk about ageism a little bit. Mm. I know that when I reflect on my own life, I had a hard time imagining myself as an older person Mm. and I think part of me didn't believe I would make it long Mm. enough to Mm. ever have to care (laughs) 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 how do you feel Mm. about aging and and the future of your life I don't know actually you know if if I try to project myself 30 years from now I'm like okay so I'd be in my mid-70s what that would look like I think I can easily project myself in 10 years. I think relatively, unless like something major happens around my health, I think I'll still be relatively active. I'll still be working. I have no intention of retiring early. So I can picture myself in 10 years. 20 years, probably even 20 years. But like getting into like the 70s, like where you're really supposed to like slow down and retire. And I have... I, I don't have a clear picture of what that looks like. Um, so that's a little unsettling. It's sort of like this unknown. I really don't know, especially, I think, so like, let's say if I were single and I were in my mid seventies, that would be a lot scarier for me, that unknown versus unknown but you're with somebody i mean i could be with somebody now but who is to say that we'll still be together in 30 years right i get that but i and i don't think i'm alone like you know people of maybe probably my age sort of trying to imagine themselves you know in their 70s i think that that it's a scary thing i really don't know what it's going to look like will i still be active i i won't be doing the sports that i'm doing the way i'm doing them now I'm guessing I might still be able to do something active, but it's also like, you know, who's going to be around me? I think, I think the fear for us in our community, like growing older, a lot of it has to do with like the fear of being lonely, Mm -hmm. of being alone. You know, will your friends be there? Will your family be there? You know, um, uh, maybe we don't have kids. I mean, some of us do have kids, but probably many of us don't. So you don't have people who would naturally be the ones who would look out for you and take care of, of, of you. I mean, I have a nephew and a niece, and maybe they might do it. For, I don't know. I think they might. Uh, but yeah, that is that is sort of a little freaky to to think there's a chance that I might grow old and be alone. I'll use the word alone and not lonely. Mm -hmm. 
because one thing I think think I've I realized about myself even since I was younger is I'm I'm sort of a loner. So I've always distinguished being alone versus being lonely. Mm. There have been times in my life I felt lonely, I will admit. But there have been times where I'm alone and I don't feel lonely. I'm perfectly fine with it. I feel it's so especially for us in the, in the LGBTQ communities, the fear of being uh, of of feeling lonely and being alone is so strong. I I think many of us like the thought of not having a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a partner in our lives it freaks us out, you know. And I think about some people in my life that are like that, like you know, they'll go like serial relationships mm-hmm. because they just don't want to be alone. They have to be with somebody or else they will feel incomplete. And I think after my second relationship, which lasted for a long time, it was like 18 years long. Whoa. It was no, 17 years or 17 or 18, 17 or 18 anyways. Like a really long relationship. After that relationship, I made a conscious decision that I was going to try to feel complete on my own as a single person not depend on an, another person to fill a gap in my life i w- i felt i was able to do it and i felt really fulfilled in my life i still do you know i have uh, hobbies and pastimes like passions that i i've developed i've been able to do things that i really wanted to do have the friendships that i wanted to to have in my life and i think that that is so critical for each and every person to be able to even concretely like live on your own like are you able to live on your own and live a life for like 6 months 1 year whatever and you'd be happy you know and i think some people can't mm-hmm. for me like that was really important to prove to myself that i could be alone single specifically single and still happy and content. So I think that's helped me with this, you know, projection 30 years from now like I think I'll be okay mm-hmm. because I've understood and I've shown myself that I can do that. I can be alone and be happy, right? But I still wonder, you know, it is still a scary thought like, you know, when you when you're 45, which my is my age now, versus 75 it's totally different i can you know i can do things now i can you know then who knows what my life will look like and and but but i think just having resolved that in my head like if i were alone i think i i'm okay i think i would have the skills and the resiliency like to cope with being alone as an older person mm-hmm. and i'd obviously come to groups like <laughs> gay and gray, you know, to meet other people Have in my situation. And yes. Go for movies and museums and bar nights yeah. and yeah. whatever. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's a, it's it's a scary thought, I think. Aging. You yeah, know, think- just the living conditions. Will you be able to live on your own? Would you move have to move into one of those long-term care homes and, you know, older for uh, And if you did, what if homes? you had very like homophobic I know people you know, living with you and and being so out now in my life how could you possibly not how be? could you go <laughs> back into a situation where you wouldn't feel like you could be i would probably still be out and will that create tensions maybe you know so that that's that sucks that we have to think about that and i know that there's there is thankfully like the more and more people thinking about you know the whole housing situation for LGBTQ seniors and i think that's really positive and necessary because it would really suck if you feel like you have to go back into the closet because some people are not going to make life very easy for you as an older person living in one of those homes that would really really suck i think even in the past year with the pandemic i think we've realized how neglected people who are aging are in our society and i so i think there's a growing awareness you know that's building that we we need to pay attention to the needs of 
people who are getting older. Absolutely. You know? and, and it, especially in the gay community, like the yeah. LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. Zuh. <laughs> yeah. You know, th- we all have very different needs than yeah. your average, you know, straight population that yeah. the world is built for. You know, the yeah. default is straight. Uh, the yeah. default is cis. The, the default is all of these things that our community doesn't tend to be. <laughs> there really does need to be more effort put into um, our community specifically. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I know we're going to start up a program to support older people living with HIV within their homes, like what we call in, I guess, in French, intervention à domicile. It will be more on the psychosocial and other levels, but it's not like physical medical care. So we'll be hiring one staff person specifically who will be able to go into people's homes and provide support in different ways, specifically for for people who are older and living with HIV. One of the things this new staff person will do, apart from you know providing the individual support for people, is potentially going into seniors' homes and doing sensitivity trainings. So for the, those folks who will eventually will need to you know move into those homes, that at least we can start educating those environments to the realities of not only people living with HIV but you know the whole LGBTQ issues and homophobia and transphobia and just getting people like understanding that you know you don't lose these identities because you get older Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, you still have them and they're important and you know so how are these homes going to adapt yeah and I think a lot of like the straight population because they've never really been in queer spaces they're just like well i mean i don't care because if you're gay if you're straight everybody's the same so they just like treat everyone the same and that's the problem right 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 (laughs) is that there kind of needs to be some slight differences you know some adaptation yeah you know um yeah so i i think i think we're you know at a societal level i think we understand that okay this is something that we need to do like i mean we know like the whole population is aging you know there are people in our you know their 50s and 60s who are sort of thinking oh well i'm not that far away from that so i think we're we're paying more attention to it because of that now which is good you know it's 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 about time mm-hmm. and uh yeah i think it'll be really good to to start doing some of that work um just I, and I think going back to the initial question, like it, it might reassure people who are sort of seeing that in their closer future that okay, maybe it won't be as bad as you imagine. Hopefully, it won't be as bad. Uh, yeah. And it's kind of out, out of left field, but we we were talking earlier about racism, and I know that with the pandemic, there's been a huge increase in mm-hmm. Asian uh, specific mm-hmm. racism. And I was wondering if you wanted to comment on that, if you'd experienced yeah. that within yourself. or um, I, I feel lucky that I haven't experienced, well, let's say in the past year, any negative situations related to you know, anti-Asian racism like directed at me. I think probably partly because I'm a man. You know, I'm, I'm not older. You know, uh, I'm, I'm in my mid-40s, you know. So I think people who would perpetrate those things don't tend to target people like myself they'll tend to target people who they feel are more vulnerable like women asian women and elders and that's what we're sort of seeing you know in the news like the people who have been victimized tend to be women asian women and older asians i know like i think at the beginning of the pandemic there were some asian stores that were vandalized and i see a lot of like the the awareness that's being built you know and i know there were demonstrations i think there was a march i wasn't able to participate in it uh, i think it was last weekend here in mm-hmm. montreal um and i think it's really great the only thing i would say is you know anti-asian racism is not new <laughs> it has a history it has a history a long history that i think a lot of people don't know and recognize so for me you know it's really great that people are saying no to anti-asian racism but 
okay, yes, yes, it's not fun to see, you know, an elder uh, Asian person being shoved to the ground. I, 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 I hope everyone would react to that. It would be nice that anti-Asian racism be recognized, like, beyond the pandemic. I think people might be surprised to know the history around that. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to get into, like, a history lesson. And, I mean, I know details, but I'm not an expert on, on that history either. But I know that, you know, uh, there have been systemic forms of anti-Asian racism, even in Canada, you know. And I think people would be very shocked by that. I think people believe that, you know, the, again, in this, you know, m model minority status that Asian Canadians have. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, well, what racism do you live, you know? Like now, okay, we get it. People are associating, you know, COVID with you. And, but they don't get like how we've experienced racism before the pandemic. So yeah, I would just in encourage people to sort of do their research around that and, and recognize that this is not something new. Whether it's anti-Asian, anti-Black, anti-Indigenous and other uh, communities of color and other minorities, I think it'd be good to just have a bigger picture of all of it because I think if we just isolate certain incidents and we think okay it's just because of COVID that there's this reaction no it's not just because of COVID there is oh, there is already underlying racism that that might have made it easier for this anti-Asian sentiment to come out now right mm -hmm. and that it doesn't it's not always you know obvious I think a lot of the time some of the most profoundly effective like affective things to experience is that that sense of othering if a white person walks into a room and there's white people there's asian people black people like you know anyone that's not white basically the white person's going to talk to the other white people and they're not going to even like look at the other people you know and and i think that level of you know it's very subtle you don't necessarily notice it because you know yeah. you, you it doesn't necessarily seem out of the ordinary but just day in, day out, like having people just not look at you, having yep. people not talk to you, yep. you know, that, that in and of itself does so much. Yep. And that's such a small thing in, in a way from, from the perspective of someone who doesn't live that, you know, racialized experience. And they're just like, what? It's fine. They just talk to their friends. Well, yeah, but there are reasons why they're friends with the other white people and they're not friends with anybody else mm. Mm. and that's what like there's there's really subtle ways that hugely impact people that we just don't really think very much about yeah yeah i think i, I totally agree with you i think the everyday experience of of racism impacts like it, it, it's even a bigger impact than you know the violence that might that, that is very overt you know those those things that are less obvious you're right they they affect like people of color in a way that you can't even imagine because it's like the everydayness of it you know imagine every day you you wake up you realize you're going to live some sort of aggression in some form because of your race or your skin color and i i don't like using the word racism people don't tend to like being called racist like pointing no. someone out and saying you're a racist doesn't tend to work when you call someone a racist like I, I think what i would like to normalize is that everyone who is in our society is racist yes until yes. they do the work and even then probably still racist yes <laughs> i know? agree i like, agree we have things that are so ingrained in us and it's not our fault no it's not our fault and i think that's that that might help some people recognize okay when we're pointing it out it's not putting blame we're understanding again like we're brought up we were raised in this system where there were these racist beliefs and stereotypes and structures in place and and we've integrated them into ourselves so it's not about placing blame because i think back when i was younger you know and you're this like activist you know and you want to point things out and so and and then I realized like well that's not working very well so yeah taking a more like 
sort of calling people in instead of calling people out. So inviting mm -hmm. people to have a dialogue about whatever incident or whatever was said or the action, you know, tends to work better. So I, I, I don't like using, and, and I see even in media and around some of the incidences, like sometimes it does get into that name calling, like you're right, like, and I, I don't, just don't think that's helpful. It doesn't help us move forward. We're all in this, like whether you're like, I, I can admit like as a gay Asian male, I definitely have things that are ingrained with me that are, are racist. And so we all have that. It's not about like, like people of color versus white people. It's like everyone, we're challenging all of us about our racist, you know, beliefs and, and, and thoughts. And if we, if we approach it that way, I think we can make progress. Yeah, like we're challenging millennia of problems, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's huge. Yeah. And so like any any bit of work that we can do to, to change that is is amazing. Yeah. And the more we can change, the better we're all going to be, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and hopefully people are going to be open to that. I mean, I, I think what's happened over the last year and, and a half, you know, with Black Lives Matter and now, you know, real people understanding, oh, there's this anti-Asian sentiment that seems to be growing. And, you know, I think people are are empathetic and sympathetic with the, these causes and, you know, they don't generally want people to, you know, experience this discrimination and violence. And, and so that's a good thing. And I th think people are starting to understand, like, we, we need to, we need to look at ourselves. Like, we need to really start looking at our, uh, how our society is structured to, that sometimes creates these, these forms of violence or, or inequities. And I think we're getting there. I think we're getting there. I think, like, around, and it's not a competition, obviously, like, you know, around uh, black people, I think, people generally tend to understand there's a history you know they understand there's been a history of slavery like generally people get that i think with anti-asian racism there's still i think some people would be surprised to to realize that i always thought asians were like you know i have friends that are asian like you know they're seen as like the models of society like so they, I think they'd be very surprised to know that there are different communities like the Asian communities that actually have experienced some pretty bad systemic racism as well. You know, I mean, not to the point of like of, of slavery, like, like, let's like put everything in perspective, but just recognizing that there is a history, you know, it doesn't just happen based on reaction to one thing, in this case to COVID, right? It's not just COVID. It's so many other things. I, th I think one question that probably a lot of people of color face is like the, where are you from? You know, like, and then, so I remember when I was younger, when someone would ask me that, whether it was a stranger or even a friend, right? It didn't matter to me. Back then I would, you know, when someone asked me, where am I from? And I knew they meant, where am I originally from, right? So, and I was, I would always say, well, I'm from Montreal or I'm from whatever neighborhood like I was living in. Like, and then they're like, no, where are you really from? You know, so, and so, and I pushed, that's how I would push back, like to make my point. But then after a while, it's just like, because of the everyday nature of it, I remember after a while, I just gave up. I gave up answering that question and pushing back i knew what they were asking so i would just give them what they asked for without challenging which is not necessarily the greatest thing i would not encourage people to do that i was just not ready to like constantly fight that battle and i also told myself i know they don't mean any harm they're just curious they actually want to get to know you right it's a good thing it's just so it's not about like there's something, it's it's the way that it's asked because it's not a bad thing to know about someone. It's actually nice that you're curious enough, right? To know that about someone. But but if it makes the other person feel like they're not really from here, yet you, they've been living here for 30 years, 
that's not really fun, right? Yeah. How, how would they feel if I made them feel like they didn't really live here, they weren't really Canadian, right? These are not the types of conversations I have with my friends. These are not、mm-hmm. the types of conversations you, that you typically have with friends, at least not my, me with my friends, you know? So I think it's like really cool. But they're so important to have. They are. They、yeah. are. And I encourage all of us to try and have these types of conversations, even with our friends. Because there are so many more LGBTQ social groups, you know, like gay and gray, that are creating community through your activities. And that's how people connect now. So hopefully, people still feel connected in some way with, with each other.